Okay, so now tonight our lesson is on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, and John is going to put up on the screen all the uh, verses from 1 through 12, and they're going to be in segments of 4, right, John? And I'm going to read them now. I'm going to read them from the English Standard Version. Is that all right, John? That's fine. Okay, it will be pretty close. But here, this is 1 through 12, and John will change them as we get through them. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemed to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may not be revealed this time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawlessness one is by the activity of Satan. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Three more verses. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth so to be, so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And we'll get to 13 through 17 later on. But through those verses there, we know, we know that the difficulties in this uh, chapter, it's undoubtedly one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament, even including Revelation. And it's so because it's using terms and thinking in pictures which were perfectly familiar to those in the first century and to Paul, but was, but to us, these things are utterly strange. So it's, it's the most difficult passage to interpret. And in, in, in doing my studies, there are many interpretations. So it's not just one interpretation, you're gonna find many. And uh, when we're finished, if anybody wants these uh, papers, they can have them. And I wrote in the, on the last section of an interpretation by Albert uh, Barnes, which is a pretty good one. Okay, so the main uh, point of this chapter is to correct an erroneous impression that the, uh, the Thessalonians were getting on. Their minds were being very shaken and they had thought the coming of the Savior was coming now was coming soon so and it was either by he they either got messed up with his former letter which i don't think so or by someone who forged a letter in his name which is possible because i don't know how they could have come to that conclusion but they had received this impression that the event was coming soon okay so therefore it became necessary for paul to state the truth on the subject in order to free their minds from the alarm they were having and this purpose of the apostle leads to one of the most important prophecies in the New Testament. And it is, I mean, it's, 
It's a very difficult one, but it's an important one. And the general picture is this. Paul was telling the Thessalonians that they must give up their nervous, hysterical, shaken, waiting for the second coming. They had to stop that. He denied that he had ever said that and that the day of the Lord, that delayed day of the Lord had come. Death was a misinterpretation of his words, which must not be attributed to him or by this false letter that was sent to them in his name. He told them that before the day of the Lord could come, much still had to happen. And a lot had to happen. It still hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so this was 1900 years ago, more than, more than that, almost 2000. So that day would not come until there could be what Paul called a great apostasy. And that's the Greek word apostasia, which means a, a <clears throat> means an, not an uncovering, but it means a turning away, a falling away, a denying on that venue there. So, and this was going to bring about the revelation, and, or which is the uncovering. The word revelation here means uncovering, it's apocalypsis, and of the man of sin. So it's rather interesting, some of these verses that Paul wrote, we're going to get into them a little later, but the character of this man of sin, I want to go through a little bit of his character, was to be so clear that it really couldn't be mistaken who he is. He would be opposed to God. He would exalt himself above all that is called God, you know, even calling himself God. And he would sit in the temple by showing himself to be God. But there was a restraining going on at that time. Something was restraining him or preventing him from the develop, development of that great apostasy. But there were indeed causes <clears throat> that were at work which would lead to it. In other words, it was still, Paul says this was happening even in his day and it was going to continue on until that restraining was taken away. So they were held in check. God would restrain them until some future time. And when he would let the man of sin be revealed. Okay. So his coming would be after the working of Satan with power, signs, lying, wonders. We're told that in scripture in places that Satan would kill. Well, well, let's go back to Moses. Moses, when he showed, turned his staff into a snake, his uh, people, the Pharaoh's people, did this. his magicians did the same thing. The only thing is they weren't as powerful as Moses. His snakes ate their snakes. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was just, but they could do those things. So that's what's going to happen. It's just going to be a time when Satan is going to come about with all these lying wonders, and he's going to bring a strong delusion. There'll be many people that will probably accept him, and they're going to believe in that lie that happens. And this great foe, God, was to be destroyed by the coming of the Savior, and one object of his appearing would be put to an end his dominion, the dominion of the, the godless one. An exhortation, to, Paul gives them an exhortation to stand fast, to maintain what they have been taught, and a prayer that God, who had given them good hope, would comfort their hearts when he closes the chapter. We know that we're all sinners, yet one man in all history is singled out as the man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one. Who is he? <laughs> Not a pleasant description, is it? So why do we talk about it? I think the main reason why we talk about it is because scripture talks about it. So we have to be alerted to that fact that uh, there is going to be a lawless one. And according to Paul, that lawlessness, whatever it was, was already at work in his day. That's very quick. You're talking about Jesus passing away on the 
AD 33, Paul wrote this probably in the 50s. So you're only looking at 20 some years. And this was, a, it was already falling away, starting to happen within the church. What it was, we don't know because the, no one has uh, really in other scriptures has told us what it was. But uh, we can get a little bit of connection with that when we go through these scriptures. Okay. And, you know, there again, we have people who connect this with uh, the little horn of Daniel 7. They also see a connection between one or more of the beasts of Revelation 13 and with the great harlot in Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. So there's a lot of interpretations. Uh, and these, these uh, outstanding prophecies have been lumped together under the common title Antichrist. Okay. So, in spite of such agreement, views regarding the fulfillment vary widely, just as I said. And in, in this enemy of God, someone in past, present, is he someone from the past, the present, or the future? The most popular view today is what's called the futurist idea. That's going to happen later on uh, during the rapture and so forth. That's our idea. And the opposite extreme is one that's really gaining right now in popularity. It's called the preterist idea, which they say that all of this stuff is a relic of ancient history. In other words, it's already happened. So for hundreds of years, the vast majority of Bible believers unswervingly have, have proclaimed that the man of sin is present reality. Okay. And we're going we're to just start here by uh, going to verse 1. Okay. And John probably has that. Yeah, it's up there. Okay, so Paul... And Paul says, and by our gathering together unto him. Now, this verse has a lot of um, manifest to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, when he said, then we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. You see the gathering together, meaning is in reference to our being gathered together unto him. So I beseech you, he says, not to be shaken in mind as if that event were near. It wasn't near. I mean, the, like Paul said, it was already happening, but it was uh, it was going to be a progression until this apostasy takes place. Okay, so what difference does it make? Uh, verses uh, two and three are still up there. Uh, <clears throat> Christ versus the man of sin. Verses two and three. It's our Lord Jesus on one side, the man of sin on the other side. The best and the worst. And Paul assures readers that not only is Christ coming, but that man of sin is coming. Don't forget that. And also, nothing less is involved than the eternal battle between the forces of good and evil. Now, we know that in Revelation is always related to it, the forces of good against evil. And we know that good always wins, and, and I'm sure good is going to win out in the end here, too. But the eternal battle is between God and Satan. So in uh, continuing in that verse, not to be shaken versus falling away. Okay, some people think that the study of prophecy has little to do with practical Christianity. How much more practical can we get than standing firm or falling away? That's very practical. The problem is that many believers think that the falling away relates only to like drunkenness, adultery, forsaking, the assembling together, things and the like. However, Paul speaks of being shaken by not knowing the day of Christ 
<clears throat> is the day of Christ past or future? And uh, that's what he's speaking of, the falling away that involves worshiping in the temple of God. It's just a shame because people, people will believe a lot of things without checking into them, without dig digging into them and looking up scripture, see if scripture is abiding with what they're saying. And in most cases, it's not. So you have to be very careful when you're going through a prophecy like this because you want to study everything that Paul's saying here and others. So number three, this is in verse 10. I don't know if verse 10 is up there. Okay, verse 10 is the love of truth versus not recent. And I will get back to the middle in here because there's a lot of things that need to be talked about the middle verses. But jumping to 10, the love of truth versus not receiving the love of truth. And that, that's happening a lot today. Don't we see that? The truth really doesn't matter for a lot of people. Love of truth is not all popular with the, what I call the do it if it makes you feel good club. And that's so happens today. I mean, we have people running around that just think whatever they do is right. And, and unfortunately, they're being taught that. It's not that they believe that on themselves, but they're being taught that through many, many different ways. That what they think in themselves is okay. You know, do what, what makes you feel good. And that's what's happening. So if you love the truth, you will search for it as diligently, diligently as you would for hidden treasure. And you can find that in Proverbs 2, 1 through 4. Okay, so the truth versus deception and the lies continue with 10 and 11. Living the Christian life is more than morality, isn't it? It has to do with what we believe. When we, what we believe is going to show up in what we do, how we live our lives, how, who we get along with, who are our friends, so forth and so on. So it has to do with truth versus error. Now we go back to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and what do we have there? We have God's truth versus Satan's lie. And it still is today. Eve had her desires cloud the truth. Paul tells Timothy and in, in, in the Corinthians that Eve was deceived. He tells us that in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14 and 2 Corinthians 11, 3. <clears throat> and in like manner, millions today are deceived by the man of sin, by those lies. We are, we're dealing with the issue of truth versus lies. Jesus is truth. Satan, we know, is, is the liar and he's the father of lies. And that's what this prophecy is all about. Okay, so in verses 10 and 12, he's, he's talked about saved versus condemned. Eternity is involved in this man's sin and prophecy. If we're saved or we're lost, blessed or condemned, many Christians sidestep these various questions, including the interpretation of prophecy by retorting, well, isn't it a matter of salvation? Well, however, you know, the concerns in this particular prophecy are very much to do with understanding the circumstances of those who are saved and those who are condemned and falling away. And it's an issue with eternal consequences, righteousness versus unrighteousness. Uh, so before attempting to fulfill the fulfillment, fulfillment of the man of uh, sin prophecy, we must give careful attention to exactly what is predicted. All the elements of the prophecy must be taken into consideration and not just a few, all of them. So words and expressions must be defined properly. The interpretation of prophecy must also agree with sound scriptural doctrine. We can't just go off on a tangent on our own thinking this is the way it is and it's not. 
And we will find a lot of people who predict prophecy or interpret it, they'll just, they'll just use something and then they'll make it into something else. And that's what you have to be careful for. And, and it's not, okay? So basically I wanted to just talk a little bit about, you know, Paul talks about the temple of, of God. This man is going to be in the temple of God, for telling, you know, telling everybody he is God. So that's one of, one of the most important questions in this prophecy. So a thousand years ago, millennium before Christ, sorry, a thousand years before Christ, Solomon built a great temple for God in Jerusalem. What happened? Four centuries later, God sent Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylonia, to devastate that temple at Jerusalem. Due to what? Due to the sins of Judah. Three great prophecies of, <clears throat> excuse me, of God, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel foretold the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple, the second one, following that devastation. Ezra and Nehemiah record the historical facts of that building, which was completed more than 400, four centuries before Christ, the second gospel. But even though the temple was rebuilt, both Daniel and Jesus prophesied the destruction of the second temple. Okay, And just like the destruction of the first one, these predictions were powerfully fulfilled a lot of people overlook this, but this uh, prediction by Jesus that every stone would be taken off of every other stone, there would not be one left upon another, came exactly true in 70 AD when Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the, all the uh, walls around it. They just uh, tore them. He was so upset with the Jewish people <clears throat> for their, that he hated them so bad because of what they were doing in that time, and we're not going to get into that thing too long. But he got so upset that that's why he decided to just destroy the whole place and tear it down. So we see that that prophecy actually came true. Those who claim that a third temple, this is what you have to watch on. Those who claim that a third temple will be built in the future, they base their views solely upon inference, not on anything scripturally or anything, just inference. Their arguments run like this. Since the man of sin will sit in a temple of God, the temple in Jerusalem has to be rebuilt, you see, in order to fulfill that prophecy. But we must ask, what is the proof that the temple of God in 2 Thessalonians 2 is to be a physical temple in physical Jerusalem? But let's give three, I'm going to give you three reasons why to reject that interpretation. First of all, there's no scripture that makes that prediction. That's the most valid one. There's not a single Bible prophecy for telling a rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple, temple after its destruction in AD 70. Secondly, one must consider the nature of the Jerusalem temple in, in the New Testament. Everyone understands that the temple in Jerusalem was the temple of God when Jesus arrived on the case. But what happened when that happened? Jesus himself said of the temple, do not make my father's a house of merchandise in John 2.16. It was in that temple that animals were sacrificed and their bloodshed for the remissions of sin by the high priest would go in there once a year and um, sacrifice an animal and then he would uh, use that blood to, for the forgiveness of the sins of all the Jewish people. However, Jesus came into the world <laughs> offering his own body and blood as a perfect sacrifice for sins. Thus at that moment, <clears throat> that moment of Jesus' death, God acted in an unprecedented manner. 
What did he do? He said, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from up from top to bottom and the earth quaked. That's Matthew 27, 51. So in that graphic fashion, God declared that he was finished with the physical temple. It was no longer to be when Jesus died. He was the perfect sacrifice. He sacrificed his body and his blood. There was no more animal sacrifices. So the term house of God never again refers to the temple as physical temple being built in to restore the Old Testament worship. Would that, wouldn't that be a slap in the face to Jesus? He came here to die, to offer up this ultimate sacrifice, we would call it. And here they are talking about another temple, animal sacrifices, and so forth. That, that would just be a slap in the face to Jesus for all that he did, who shed his blood to do away with those sacrifices. Thirdly, in Timothy 3.15, it clearly states that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So scripture could not say more clearly what the house of God is today. God's church. After Jesus' death, the temple of God never again is referred to as a physical temple in physical Jerusalem. Rather, it refers to the church of God. It seems that our brethren in Corinth were not quite sure of what that meant because Paul said to him in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, don't you know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? You see, there's, there's the, what the scripture is telling us about the temple of God. You know, that, that's not going to be, didn't Jesus, who, didn't he tell, when he was talking to Nicodemus, didn't he tell them he had to be a spirit, he had to be born of spirit and of water, to serve God had to be, you, the Spirit, God is Spirit, you have to worship Him in Spirit. And it was no longer a building possessing a temple. So that's the sound doctrine. By using that doctrine as the basis for the study of prophecy, we will realize that when 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks prophetically of the temple of God, it must be a prophecy about the church, not about some building that's going to be built. Okay, but something very evil was going to happen in, in Jesus' church, unfortunately. Okay, so the apostasy, the Greek apostasia, falling away, a deflection, apostasy. Since this prophecy has something to do with the temple of God, the church is therefore predicting a falling away from the true church. It is a prophecy about apostasy. Now, I know some, uh, you'll find in some, Translations, it's going to say a rebellion, but it's the Greek word apostasia, which means apostasy, falling away, a departure from the faith, once for all delivered to the saints that you talked about in verse 3. We have to study church history to search for that falling away. Now, here's the key. If there was going to be a falling away, an apostasy of the church, we know that it was already at work, verse 7. And we a couple of that with verse 3, the falling away comes first. Then the lawless one will be revealed. Here's the interesting verse, verse 6. Let me go through this. But verse 6 says, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. The Thessalonians knew who was restraining or what was restraining him. But that's, that's the only place we have that written. There's no other writing in there that tells us who or what that restraining power is. A lot of people think it's the Holy Spirit that was restraining. We don't know. I mean, that's not told to us. But uh, that's an interesting verse that they already knew who was restraining him. So 
I'm going to move on here because we're almost out of time, but we've got about eight minutes. So I'm going to move on to the last verses. And if anybody wants a copy of these, they can have them. And at the end, I have a whole uh, two pages of Albert Barnes's idea of interpretation. He's a great scholar. You can have that if you want. Okay, but first, in this passage, in through 13 through 17, basically this is a kind of a summary of the Christian of Christian life. As Paul's given him, he begins with God's call. Unless he has already found us, the whole initiative is with him. The foundation and the moving cause of the whole matter is seeking love. It develops in our effort. Christians are not called to dream, but to fight and to stand, and not to stand still, but to climb. They are called not only to the greatest privilege, but also to the greatest task in the world. We talk about that almost every Sunday, every study that our job is to bring the word of God to as many people as we can. And uh, that, our, I got that little saying from Barclay, William Barclay. <laughs> and so I thought that was pretty neat. Verse 14, God has chosen you to salvation from eternity. And he has given the gospel as preached by us the means of carrying that eternal <clears throat> purpose into effect. To obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. To obtain that glory. That you may be taught partake of the same glory as the Savior in heaven. Verse 15, he says, stand fast. I'm trying to get through these. God has chosen you to salvation. I'm sorry, stand fast against all the temptations which surround you, and behold the traditions which you have been taught. Now, Paul's not talking about traditions of men. He's talking about the traditions that he gave them in his letters or in his preaching, not in the traditions that were just made up by men. It's all the uh, scriptures and all the traditions. Of, remember, they didn't have the completed Bible yet. So they had letters from uh, so forth and so on. And the uh, Gospels, I don't think, uh, had really gone around the whole area yet. So they, they had to learn from mouth to mouth. And when Paul, that's why Paul, I think, went on so many missionary journeys, so that he could take this word to as many people as possible, so that they could know what God was doing. Okay, so he wanted them to stand fast. Okay, and here, I just said that. Verse 16, not temporary, temporary comfort, but eternal comfort that lasts forever. We know that when we get there, it's going to be eternal. The joys of religion are not like other joys. They soon fade away. They also terminate at death. <clears throat> Interesting. They cease with trouble. When trouble comes, when sickness invades the body, there's troubles and so forth, and there's no joy in that. When wealth or friends depart, when disappointment lowers, when the senses by age refuse to minister as they once did to our pleasures, that's going to happen to all of us. We see it happening in our older uh, generation. And so the comforts of religion, though, depend upon no such contingency. They live through all these changes. They attend in sickness, poverty, bereavement, losses, age, they are with us in death. And they are perpetual and unchanging beyond the grave. And that, that's from Barnes too. But that is so true, that everything that we do, and we know that we're in Christ, it's going to go with us for all eternity. We're following his way, and that's going to lead us to there. Okay, so the Thessalonians, verse 17, were in the midst of trials. Paul prayed that they might have full 
consolation of their religion and make them firm and steadfast in every good work and word and every true doctrine and in the practice of every God and every virtue. Okay, it's 7.30. I have that 7.33. We're just about 30 minutes, right, John? Pretty close, a couple minutes off maybe. But anyways, I wanted to show you this book. Can anybody, can you see that on, on Zoom? I don't know if I can bring it closer or what. Yeah. <laughs> but the name of the book is Nobody Left Behind. And it's written by David Vaughn Elliott. If you want to get a good book on the interpretation of prophecies, this is a great book. This was put out because of the fact that the Left Behind series, when people were being left behind and so forth. Well, he wrote this book scripturally and entitled it Nobody Left Behind. Anybody who is in Christ is going to be saved. There's not going to be a second chance for people who aren't believers. I mean, we're told that throughout scriptures, yet we still have the people that want to believe that there's going to be a rapture, that bad people are going to stay, the good people are gone, and the second, and they're going to get a second chance to become believers. No, nowhere in scripture will you find that. And, uh, but anyways, he wrote this book. It's an insight to the end time prophecy. But it's a great book. I, I've read it. I use a lot of stuff on it. It's, it's good. I always, when I read these books, I always look up the scriptures they relate to because many books you look up for scriptures and they only quote half the scripture to make it sound like what they wanted to say. That's, that's, you have to be very careful at that. Okay, so that brings us to a conclusion. And uh, like I said, if anybody wants these and, and this extra page from Barnes, uh, you're welcome to it.